Today's episode sponsored in part by a native Alaskan, the Emperor Goose, also known as the Beach or Painted Goose. And now, a word from our sponsor. listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Brad Micklejohn is a member of the Rewilding Institute Leadership Council and is currently Senior Alaska Representative for the Conservation Fund, where he's worked since 1994. Brad has directed hundreds of conservation projects, protecting over 500,000 acres of wildland in Alaska, and he recently completed a major dam removal project on Alaska's Aklutna River. Brad was successful in removing cows from 200,000 acres in Nevada's Great Basin National Park, and he's working on constructing wildlife highway crossings in New Hampshire. He served as president of Patagonia Land Trust, as president of American Packrafting Association, and as associate director of the Utah Avalanche Center, and as a board director of the Murray Center. Brad is a birder and wilderness explorer, and he recently published The Wild Trails, a book that is part memoir, part conservation polemic, and part Buddhist training manual. You can pick up a copy of Brad's book at rewilding.org pod and look for episode 87. I think we tend to think about Alaska the wrong way. Many people place Alaska kind of in its own category when it comes to conservation. There's Alaska and then the rest of the world, but I think that's a mistake. It's in a way, uh, relegating real wildness to Alaska is like relegating happiness to heaven. You might never get there. Hmm. And I actually think that Alaska should be the proper yardstick for conservation for things like rewilding for wildlands network design, 30 by 30 and half earth. And we should try to gear our conservation everywhere at an Alaskan scale, not at some sort of downgraded step down scale. And I generally think we've been thinking too small about conservation, um, the way it's done around the world. And Alaska, in my mind, has probably the best functional model to look to. Um, We've got a vast conservation system. 40% of Alaska is in some sort of protected status, whether it's parks, refuges, monuments, national forests. We've got conservation areas that are much larger than Yellowstone. In fact, 17 of those are larger than Yellowstone. And some of them range from the two and a half acre two and a half million acre Yukon Charlie National Park to the 20 million acre Arctic Refuge. And we've got some of the largest uh, protected areas in the world that are contiguous with lands in Canada forming um, conservation units that exceed 30 million acres. The evidence suggests that this is the scale we have to work at because what we have in Alaska is working. We've got very few endangered species. We've got all of our uh, large wide ranging carnivores. We've got uh, vast herds of caribou that number up to 100 million. We've got 
something like 300 million salmon that still come back to our rivers, 100 million nesting seabirds and shorebirds, uh, something close to 10 million nesting waterfowl. So we kind of got it all. And the reason we have it all is because of this vast system of protected areas. And so, you know, if we want to look to a place that that did it right, Alaska really is that place. And a lot of folks hear about Alaska in a negative light. I was recently talking to someone uh, from the lower 48 who was depressed hearing about Alaska. And she said, well, I really, I don't want to go to Alaska because I hear all this horrible news about the Arctic refuge or about the Tongass or about the pebble mine or climate chaos. It makes me very sad and I don't want to see what's happening to Alaska. And I said, well, you know, that's unfortunate. We tend to focus on the negative while forgetting about how vast and spectacular Alaska is. And so I, I remind people that you really cut, should come and see this place because it'll blow you away and it'll kind of set the bar in a different place in your mind for the work of conservation wherever you are. But if we're serious about doing conservation right, this is what it looks like. And so we should constantly try to scale up our efforts wherever we can. You know, there's a trap in thinking small. Every little bit helps in conservation. So it's not that small scale projects don't matter. They do, and you should do everything that you can, but you should always put it into a broader context of what what's really necessary to keep the parts and pieces functioning. One of the things that I point out is that Alaska turns typical conservation design on its head, where in most parts of the world, we have these isolated protected areas and they're connected by corridors and buffers. Alaska's the complete flip of that, where we have humans, people, the developed areas, serving as relatively small islands, and they're connected by these rather thin uh, road networks. So it's the mirror image of conservation design. And George Werthner had a great piece that he sent the other day. It's about the hum- the civilization protected areas system, where basically it's taking the Alaska model and applying it elsewhere, keeping people in relatively smaller nodes and having those nodes connected by roads, as opposed to protected areas being isolated small nodes connected by corridors. So many of the places that I've traveled around the world, I've just been struck by how challenging it is to do conservation at a small scale and really have it stick. You know, a lot of the places are just too small to support carnivores, to support wide-ranging herbivores like caribou or the, the vast herds of grazers in, in Africa. And so we have to continually kind of upgrade our thinking about, you know, what, what it's going to take. And it's not going to be short work. It's not going to happen overnight, but we should keep that uh, kind of the goal in mind. In an opinion piece you wrote in Anchorage Daily News in August 2000, uh, parting thoughts for Alaska visitors. You say, there's nothing special about Alaska. The land around your home used to abound with wildlife too. It's just that you've had longer to mess it up than we have. You have too many roads and too many people leaving too little room for wildlife. Wild nature can and should be brought back to the rest of the country. So you kind of flip the whole thing on its head. And I was really, I mean, I was inspired enough to dog ear that page deeply (laughs) in your book. And I was like, yes, this is actually the way to look at it instead of going, well, at least we've got Alaska. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, I grew up in the Northeast, Jack, you probably know that. And I moved to Alaska about 30 years ago. So I kind of, I'm able to toggle back and forth between both. 
And when I go home to New Hampshire, I'm always a little bit sad because that's a place that used to support wolves and uh, salmon. I live on a tributary of the Connecticut River that used to support salmon. And it's amazing what we get used to. You know, I come back here and I live on the outskirts of Anchorage, which is Alaska's biggest city. And yet there are still bears here. I have wolverine in my backyard. I have salmon spawning in the creek here in front of my house. You know, it's entirely possible. We just have to dream it. We have to think big enough to want to get it back. And, you know, we have this issue with ecological amnesia where we forget what used to be in these places and we forget what we're really kind of aiming at. So we have to kind of keep checking in with the big picture. Alaska is that picture. It should serve as that benchmark, as that yardstick that we look to like, okay, how are we doing compared to that? We shouldn't settle for, you know, a few salmon in the Kennebec or the Penobscot. That's great that we're bringing those back, but we're a long way from, you know, what used to be. And so, you know, Alaska is kind of what used to be. It's still here, but you, you can get here. You can, you can bring this back. It is possible. And it's not to say that Alaska is just home free, like it's completely protected. And <laughs> at least we have Alaska, right? I mean, it, we don't have Alaska. If we, if we stop, even for a second, if groups like yours don't uh, keep an eye on everything, there are several threats to Alaska at any given moment. Yeah, more than several. You know, you can run down the, the list of usual suspects, whether that's um, the perennial concern about oil development in the Arctic Refuge, um, the proposed pebble uh, gold mine in Bristol Bay, probably the worst location for a gold mine conceivable. It's the largest remaining salmon fishery on the planet. Uh, this year, Bristol Bay is expected to get 60 million fish uh, 60 million sockeye salmon coming back into the rivers and lakes there. Uh, uh, there's still ongoing logging of old growth timber down in the Tongass. Uh, climate chaos is becoming a serious factor for conservation here in Alaska in a number of different ways. And we really are sort of the front lines for climate change. We see it in, in uh, so many different ways, whether it's the retreat of our glaciers or uh, the melting of our permafrost, massive wildfires, ocean acidification that's affecting the salmon, uh, uh, warming rivers that aren't attractive to fish coming back in. And one of the, the issues that we're seeing more frequently here in our winters is winter rains. And we're having winter rains as far north as the North Slope. And these winter rains are starting to be a real challenge for our migratory caribou where you have uh, suddenly um, several winter rain events that are putting two and three inch ice crusts on the snow that make it very difficult for the caribou to forage for the, the, the ground lichens that they're um, subsisting on. So yeah, we do have plenty of challenges, but we also have you know plenty that's going right. So you, you keep pressing forward. Uh, Alaska is not immune from the things that have uh, ravaged the lower 48. Uh, a lot of our lands here in Alaska that are sort of de facto wildlands are owned by the state of Alaska or are in private ownership. And over time, we will see more development and our conservation units will become more isolated. So what we have now is something we have to keep safeguarding. There's a lot of work in front of us and that's the nature of conservation. It's sort of this uh, relay race where each generation has to do their part. You carry the baton uh, while you can, you do your part and you pass it off. 
And, you know, our work, you know, as you know, Jack is never done. It's always, there's always something to do, but I think it's so important to step back and see what you have done, how much progress you have made, how much you have to be grateful for what we have to celebrate. And one of the concerns that I see in conservation is we have a tendency to focus on the bad news. And just like I was talking about a lady who didn't want to come to see Alaska because of all the terrible things she hears about it, that's, you know, shame on us. We really should uh, do better at telling um, the positive stories and making people feel like, you know, there is hope. There's always hope. And you have to just keep pressing forward on that. And, um, and uh, you know, you have to let the results take care of themselves. You can't really control the outcome necessarily, but you can control um, your intention in this and you just have to stick with it for, for as long as you can carry the baton. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. One of the things that has touched Alaska, as it has practically everywhere, that there's a river, are dams. I think the frontier of conservation work across the country and around the world is on dam removals. One of the things that Alaska has done so well is we've built relatively few dams on our rivers. And it's thanks in large part to that, that we still have so many salmon coming back. And salmon are an amazing system where if you get out of the way, stay out of the way, they keep coming back. It's almost like the perfect economic system where the, the less that you do, the more they reward you. So there's an example not too far from where I live here near Anchorage, uh, where there was a dam built in the 1920s on the Klutner River. That was one of the first dams built in Alaska to provide hydropower for uh, the young growing city of Anchorage. And it was built on a salmon river and it blocked off fish runs going up to a six mile long lake called the Klutner Lake. And that dam was decommissioned in the 1950s and the power replaced by uh, additional power supplies elsewhere. But the dam remained uh, in the canyon on the Eklutna River for about 70 years, just blocking fish, a classic deadbeat dam that nobody was responsible for. And uh, people had forgotten that the fish used to go up through that canyon and past that dam and into the lake. So I started, I was inspired by a movie called Damnation put out by Patagonia, a great movie about the kind of the dam removal movement uh, nationwide and worldwide. And I started casting around for a dam of my own to take down. And this one just happened to be in my backyard. And uh, the more I talked about it, the more excited people got about it. And there's something really powerful about dam removal work, Jack. It's sort of like uh, putting Humpty Dumpty back on the wall. It's very tangible work where you're getting your hands muddy and you're, you know, beating away on an old concrete dam. And at the end of that project, you have a free flowing river again, and you start to see fish moving back up it. You start to see bears and moose moving through the canyon where they hadn't been able to move for 70 years. 
And it was, you know, it was the highlight of my career with the Conservation Fund taking this dam down. And I was super inspired by it. It's been a hugely popular project here in South Central Alaska. And I think it really galvanized people to, to think seriously about what you need to do to safeguard salmon. And hopefully it's a lesson that we've learned here in Alaska to not uh, put up dams on salmon bearing rivers. And here's a case where we did it. Uh, we made a mistake. We screwed up the salmon runs, but we changed course and we took that dam down and the salmon are coming back. And it's just, there've been so many examples from around the country. Um, uh, the Olympic Peninsula has several dams that recently came down and the salmon come back incredibly fast when you take these uh, dams out of the way. I mean, it's pretty obvious that that would be the case. And so, yeah, you know, I've, I've seen these situations where it takes decades to get the mo political momentum and money to take these dams down, um, but the fish respond incredibly fast and we shouldn't dither in, in taking these things down because the results speak for themselves. Every time we do it, we learn um, how fast the systems recover. I think we should go full speed ahead on dam removals around the country because so many of our rivers are sclerotic with dams. You know, we have something like 90,000 dams uh, across uh, the U.S. that are larger than three feet and, and thousands more that are smaller than that. And many of these are deadbeat dams. There's only something like 1,000 or 1,700 dams that actually produce power in North America, most of these dams are uh, not serving great purpose. And a lot of them have been abandoned and should be taken down. And so there is a growing movement across the country. I think we're taking down something like a thousand dams a year now. And um, so that for my money is some of the most important work. There, there are a number of places in Alaska where we have large waterfalls uh, that block salmon and above and below those um, waterfalls, everything is different because the salmon are bringing nutrients into these rivers and they're changing the, the plants, they're changing the trees, they're changing the insect life, they're changing the mammal life. And so viewing these rivers as the arteries of our lands is an important part of, of uh, rewilding. You know, like we're doing a great job protecting lands around the country, but we need to open up those arteries so that the nutrients can start moving into these lands. Some of the things about rewilding that appeal the most to me these days are the things where you're just as non-invasive as possible and just leaving things alone and watching nature work. And this feels a lot like that, although the physical removal of a dam is fraught with political problems and and a lot of planning and a lot of work uh, leading up to the actual deed but it still just feels like all you're doing is letting nature take it back over <laughs> yeah i would agree it's uh it's kind of like when i was saying with the salmon if you just get out of the way they do fine the less you mess with them the better they do and the better they are for us you know salmon are an important uh, food source for a lot of alaskans everybody's recognized that if we don't mess with them, then they keep coming back for us. And uh, that's a super powerful uh, thing to actually see when you take a dam down, get it out of the river, out of the salmon's way, the fish just know what to do. They're back in a matter of, of years. So the recovery happens uh, quickly by itself. And we've seen that with, you know, road removals. We've, we've seen it in a lot of different ways where once you just get the, the impediment out of the way, nature takes over. 
something that's a lot more taboo and that most <laughs> conservation groups won't touch is what I call the third rail of uh, the topic of human population and its obvious effect on wildlands and biodiversity. Um, another topic you're not afraid to talk about. Yeah, it's interesting that back in the 70s and 80s, conservation groups used to talk about population quite openly and honestly as uh, basically the root problem behind a lot of what we face in uh, conservation challenges. And it's odd that that's really fallen off the radar for a variety of different reasons. Uh, meanwhile, in my lifetime, the human population has gone from 3 billion when I was born in 1960 to uh, about 8 billion currently, nearly a tripling. And everywhere I go, I travel a lot uh, widely around the world, you see that signature and it, I think it's just plain dishonest of us to uh, not confront that head on. And I don't think that makes you anti-human. I guess the way I view it is, yeah, I think it was Lord Byron who had that great quote that I love man, not the less, but nature more. And with a planet of 8 billion people, the needs of humans just seem to swamp everything else. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that's... Uh, misguided and we're we're terribly out of balance and i don't know how we get back in balance if especially if we're not talking about it one of the connections that's quite obvious to me is the connection between population and climate and if you look at the two curve the two growth curves of of a human population and carbon dioxide accumulation in the atmosphere they're basically parallel curves they're the same curve and it totally stands to reason with more people you're going to have more carbon dioxide building up in the atmosphere. So it's it's pretty hard to see how we make a lot of headway on climate if we're not making simultaneous headway on population. We're adding 80 million people a year to the planet. And um, uh, that's just this inexorable grind. Unfortunately, we're starting to see a uh, flattening of the human population growth curve. But in my mind, uh, we need to talk about downsizing. I mean, I think there's some pretty good science on the demographics of human population growth uh, and proposals that we would really be in better balance where our numbers down closer to a billion or even less than a billion uh, humans uh, worldwide. So yeah, I'd like to see that come back onto the table as a valid topic for conversation. <clears throat> it's made difficult because of the new ideas that are coming out about old ideas. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about any concerns you have about uh, revisionism and, and uh, the so-called woke conservation movement? I'm glad we're not uh, shying away from any of the, the uh, third rails here. Let's just uh, go ahead and get, let's just hit them all. Let's go for the blow it all up. Yeah. Um, well, it is pretty fascinating that nearly every large conservation group and many small ones have kind of recast themselves as social justice organizations, as human welfare organizations in the last couple of years. We have the Wilderness Society dropping wilderness from its mission statement, Sierra Club distancing itself from its founder, John Muir. We have Audubon disowning John James Audubon. We have World Wildlife Fund accused of being anti-human colonial oppressors. And um, as you said, I think a lot of this is misguided revisionist history. And it's part of a broader moral panic. And my own view is that conservation groups should focus first and foremost on the needs of the non-human world and be unapologetic about that. 
you know, there are thousands of organizations out there that are devoted to human welfare. Something like 97% of philanthropy goes to human welfare, like museums and universities, hospitals. And the remaining, I think the remaining 3% of philanthropy should stay focused on nature conservation. You know, we don't ask hospitals and museums and universities to take down dams and protect grizzly bears. And I think what's working behind the scenes here with this social justice movement is the idea that if we take care of the needs of people first, that we'll end up with better conservation in the long run. And I think that needs to be examined. I'm not sure that that's true. I think actually the reverse is true, that if we take care of nature first, that humans benefit. Um, typically, when we take care of the needs of people first, it's nature that takes the hit. So I would, I would just flip that, that thinking around. And again, I, I don't think that caring about nature makes us anti-human. Um, I think it's just putting us more in context with all the other critters that have evolved with us. I mean, we are, we are part of a vast web of, of life that has been evolving on this planet for 3.8 billion years. And we, are, we shouldn't place ourselves ab above any of that. We're part of that. How do you see this changing? Is this a wider cultural issue? And I know that culture takes a long time to change. Um, well, I think the pandemic has really highlighted the craving that people have for nature. Like you pointed out, basically every trailhead, every trail, every uh, park has been swarmed with people in the last couple of years. And that's great. People obviously have a thirst for nature. There's something there that they uh, really uh, they know is healing. It's been a powerful uh, refuge for folks. But I do think that our relationship with nature is a bit more transactional rather than transformative. And a couple of things that come to mind, um, you know, we tend to just kind of charge through nature with our own agenda. I've been advocating that we, we take a closer look at that and, and develop more of a reciprocal relationship with nature rather than a transactional relationship with nature. And I think some of it is coming from you know, the companies that, that um, pedal outdoor gear, they're kind of promoting a certain way of, of consuming nature. I'm suggesting that we go out and, and sort of rethink how we exist in nature, that we uh, ask what nature might need from us, because nature was there for us in the last couple of years in a big way when uh, the soccer games weren't there, when the movie theaters were closed, when we couldn't you know, visit with friends and family. Nature was one of the few places that was there for us. It was a great source of solace for people. So now we kind of have this obligation to give back. That's kind of what I've been hoping is that people flocking to nature in the last couple of years has, has helped people understand how important that is to them. And it, it remains to be seen whether that will translate into changes in our politics, whether people start voting for candidates that really support conservation, whether they change their shopping habits, habits whether they change uh, their thoughts about the vehicles they drive, about the way they spend money, about the way their family planning choices. So that's what I would like to see. And a lot of that responsibility hasn't really translated in the way we think about nature that you know we've been getting environmental education for all of my life but it's kind of a freebie, it's a throwaway. And if I were running the show, I would have some accountability where, you know, okay, you're gonna get this information about environmental education and how important the environment is, but we're gonna follow up, let's say, you know, once every year, once every couple of years, or once every five years, and we wanna know how you voted. We wanna know how you shop. We wanna know how you traveled and what kind of vehicles you drove. 
And, you know, like there needs to be some accountability to nature because it's not just a bank account you can draw down to zero. You need to keep putting money back into that. And so I think of reciprocity, I think of restraint, and I think of respect as aspects that we need to bring to our relationship with nature that have been rather lacking. You know, we get faced with an awful lot of bad news. We can go down that rabbit hole on the internet. It's called doom scrolling. And we've we've been doing that since way before the internet, doom scrolling through the papers, through the newsletters, uh, you know, and you can get really caught up in that. I always like to ask conservationists who have made it a point to talk about uh, your practice uh, of just staying on top of things and staying uh, healthy mentally uh, and physically you're pretty open about your view on how conservationists should look at the work that they do and your practice. In the years that I've been working in conservation, I have seen a lot of uh, frustration and anger and despair and depression and burnout. It's sort of endemic in conservation. Those things are almost a tautology. That, that That's what goes along with uh, being an activist. Um, but I would argue that all those things are optional and none of those things make you more effective. Uh, I think it was Ram Dass who said, you can't expect to live in a peaceful world if you're not peaceful. <laughs> and a lot of the people that I know who are conservationists or activists aren't peaceful because they're angry about what they see. And I, I think it's quite common that people have a perspective that things shouldn't be that this way. I'm angry, like, oh, why is it this way? Well, the reality is, uh, and this might sound a little trite, but if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. And there's a great expression from the Vietnamese monk Nhat Han, who said, the world is not coming at you, it's coming from you. And all these things can sound like sort of Buddhist hallmark trivial expressions, but if you put the time into training your mind, you can actually see how we create some of this suffering for ourselves. Like you can see what actually is. It's okay. You can have this awareness that it's like this. It's like this now. That's a really healthy perspective. It's not some other way. Yeah, it's not the way you want it to be. It's just like this. It, I, I know people who kind of cling to their outrage as a sort of a moral virtue. I, I think some folks feel like that's what gives them drive. That's what makes them effective. But I've also seen that really be a poison. And if that outrage is running through your veins all the time, sort of like caffeine, it has a cost to you, it has a cost to the people around you, and it affects your, your ability to make a difference. And, you know, I, I think we have to be mindful about how we interact with the people around us. And I think conservationists can come off as a little bit shrill and a little bit harsh and a little bit judgmental. And we have to really look at ourselves. If we're not healthy, we can't expect to live in a healthy world. So we have to learn to take care of ourselves. And I, you know, quite candidly, I have been just as guilty of these things as other people that I've run into. I've struggled with depression for a long time. And, and I was often frustrated by what I saw as an imperfect world, that it wasn't the way that I wanted it to be. So, you know, after going through a lot of my own personal challenges, I was happy to come across something that worked for me in the form of Buddhist meditation. But I, you know, people can find their own paths. There are a variety of other ways that you can find that um, internal balance and refuge for yourself. And some of those might be uh, religion, they might be psychedelics. Um, I always advocate that people spend time in nature. 
And, um, you know, one of my pet peeves about conservation is that conservationists don't spend enough time out in nature. And I always advocate if I were kind of king of conservation for a day, I would say, you know, to my subjects that you would go out and spend three weeks of your year in wild nature. And that would do you an immense amount of good in calming you down, disconnecting you from your phone and reconnecting you to nature. And I would say it's kind of been my, my secret sauce as I have had the benefit of traveling extensively to wild places around the world. And that's what grounds me. It's what fires me up. It connects me. It helps me understand the place. And it gives me authority to speak you know, from a place of experience that I have that depth of immersion in wild nature. And so, you know, it's, it's one of the symptoms, I think, of why we're seeing so many conservation groups drift into social justice and human welfare, because people aren't very connected to nature. I really encourage people to kind of get back in touch with nature. And, and I think that's a really, you know, powerful antidote for a lot of what ails us culturally and personally. On top of the fact that we need, especially the young people coming up who we are going to be passing the baton to, to remain healthy and able uh, to move. And, and uh, as someone who has also suffered with depression, uh, immobility is a hallmark of depression. <laughs> uh, just staring at a doorknob sometimes is about all you can handle if you get yourself in that state. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm, it's so nice to hear you talk about it. It's going to be so nice to have a conversation out there in the world about this stuff, because we really don't talk about it that much, in my opinion. Uh, Absolutely. You know, we, we stuff that down a hole and our society uh, really encourages that. It's sort of, you know, it's the Instagram, Facebook, everybody's smiling and having a great time where <laughs> you start to feel like if you're not part of that happy world, there's something wrong with you. And we all have our demons. We all have our struggles. And a lot of that is of our own creation. And there are tools, there are ancient traditions that have, um, uh, help people find a different path. I mean, you're not alone. All of these things are part of our psyche, and um, the mind is a can be a, um, a great ally or a terrible uh, enemy. And learning how to you know, take a close look at your mind, sitting down and seeing how your mind works and what it gets up to when it's left to its own devices, it's kind of like the monkey mind. It can really take you into some places that are not particularly helpful. So. Uh, you know, for those who are interested, there is a whole wealth of information out there about Buddhist meditation and other um, different approaches. And I encourage you to avail yourself of it and open the conversation. I think it's not healthy uh, when we uh, turn away from this. And if you know somebody who's struggling, have a conversation with, with, with them about it. And, uh, and that was part of my experience. I, you know, I think people knew that I was having some difficulty, but they didn't know how to broach it. And I would say the first step is just having that conversation and being you know sincere and opening the door your point about getting out because you've traveled because you have been out for most of your life outside and doing things you know what's actually happening out there and there's bad things happening and there's also good things happening uh, a lot of good things and i think i would say that you have a more balanced view of what's actually needing to be worried about and a lot of other things you see people hand-wringing about that aren't as bad as uh, the headlines might make them sound. Yeah, you know, we're programmed by evolution to uh, look for threats and opportunities, and the threats are more important to us. You know, that's from our 
days uh, back in the cave when you had to worry about the saber-toothed tiger out there. Um, you needed to pay attention to the threat. So we're kind of we're really good at focusing on the bad news to our detriment. So you need to just be aware of that. And I think it was uh, Ramdas who had this great line about the world is perfect as it is, but it could be better, right? So there's a paradox <laughs> there. You know, embrace that paradox, and you know, enjoy. Enjoy the good things that are there to be seen and don't get carried away by the negativity. And I think it was Ed Abbey had this great quote about um, climb the mountains, bag the peaks, run the rivers, breathe deep of that yet sweet and lucid air, sit quietly for a while and contemplate the precious stillness. I promise you this, you will outlive the bastards. And that really is the formula, right? Like, okay, it's bad. It could be better. I'm going to do my part. Um, I can't control the results, um, but I'm also going to enjoy the beauty while it's here. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I really appreciate your work. Nice to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.